you feel like you're part of this great extended network of humanity and of life coming right up next to you, that you're part of this larger community. And it's a feeling of of communion and togetherness. It's quite extraordinary. Welcome to Design Makes Everything Better, a podcast about design as a process for making decisions and succeeding. Today on episode number six, part two, Vince interviews Christine Macy, architect, historian, and former dean of architecture at Dalhousie University. And now here's your host, Vince. Hello and welcome. Thanks for uh, checking in to the second part of our conversation with uh, Christine Macy. And uh, it is officially a continuation of our first conversation. This is going to possibly feel a little bit jarring if you didn't listen to the first part. In this conversation, we tackle uh, two really interesting areas of, um, of a topic, with first being the physicality of building. And what that means is the tactile components to coming to a design, the process of developing something, which is more than just living in the digital space. As people who work in the physical environment, it's important that in the design process that we are really holding on to real elements and uh, objects and doing mock-ups. So something that's very true to our office and uh, something that we talked a little bit about with Christine. The other part is something that is very true to what we value as an office and uh, it sounds like she sees as a parallel in the value of architecture and that is a need for cross-disciplinary skill sets. It's important in the ever-changing pace of our world and the skill sets that we need to adopt and learn. If we just go to architecture school and only learn how to be architects and designers, I think once we graduate and start working, some of those things will be obsolete. So it's important to really broaden your experience. It is about design thinking and including a lot more in your 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 toolbox of skill sets. So thanks again for checking in and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Be sure to like and subscribe, tell your friends, we love doing this, and hopefully you love it as well. Could you describe a little more for me the first part that you described of the bringing together of, of people just a second ago with regards to how our role could increase and have a greater value or social contribution? How... How do architects in that particular scenario lead that that space of of inclusivity? They could have a bit of a role more like a movie producer or what we think of as a developer of buildings, which we tend to think of as very synthetic and integrative roles that connect the finance with the visualization. Architects have a lot of that same skill set that's quite integrative although it may be less like a movie producer, more like a movie director, but you still have to know an awful lot about these different pieces. And I think an office like yours is quite interesting, Breakhouse, because you have people working in many different domains on a shared activity. And I think this allows you insight that might be lacking in other firms about how to best proceed with a certain project. Yeah. So rather than only looking at the form of something and then if it goes way over budget, well, that's you know someone else's problem or we have to have this material or we have to have this look. You say, well, actually, 
we might be able to do it with a completely different, maybe it's about our social media strategy. Yeah. Maybe it's about making better use of an outside space. Maybe it's about a graphic treatment. And so you have more, you actually have more food in your pantry, if I can use that analogy. Yeah. <laughs> if you have more items in your pantry, then you can you can make better recipes. You can. I appreciate that because, you know, oftentimes, I think this is a significant role for design thinking in general. If we have a client that comes in, and we've had a few that have come in with a very clear idea of what what their problem or challenge was as a business. They thought, oh, what we have to do is we have to redo an interior of our retail space. And um, we spend time with them to study their existing spaces, understand how their customers are engaging with their staff. And then we come back to them. And sometimes we've come back to them and said, you don't need to spend your money on that. What you need to spend your money on is clear description of what your offering is because it's not made clear in your space. So what that looks like is we have to redo your brand. We have to evolve it and how you're communicating it to your customers in the space or on online and all of these different channels. So instead of spending $9 out of 10 on each particular store, you can actually spend maybe two out of those $10 at $10 and you'll see a significant increase. And we have a number of examples where we've gone through and have, have found that success. It's just, if you give somebody a hammer, that old That's verbiage, right. everything right. looks like a nail, right? That's right? If you go to an architect for a problem, a solution, if you need to find something, they'll give you an architectural one, the same with an interior designer or a graphic designer. So how can we then, because I find this is, it it, it is a, it is a big challenge, I think, as a as a blind spot that we have as a profession, which is our teaching and the the way that we move into the professional world after graduating is our problems with housing are architectural and uh, or the solution is architectural. How we create a better city is to make nicer looking buildings. It it which is so thin. It's such a, it's it's not deep enough in terms of in thinking of a bigger picture that can really uh, make our cities better and and be a leader in our communities in in a way that is substantial. And it just it has to come from understanding that there are other voices out there, that there are other people out there that can influence the things that we need to build or not build. I think one of the big ways into that, I mean, it's really a question about is is a general education or a specialist education better? And then at what point, if one starts an education and becomes specialist, at what point do you become a generalist in terms of your career trajectory? It's also how you, where you're placed after education. If you stay in a firm that is small and tends to be specialized in something, it's very different than if you're put in a firm where you if you join a firm where you're you're involved with people from many different domains and you have to generalize. And we see this often, let's say, in industries. If someone comes in, let's say, with an engineering specialty that's very focused, and then they grow more and more interested in the larger dimensions yeah. of, of the challenge. And so I think I think you actually need both kinds of education, specialist and generalized. But in terms of our School of Architecture, I'm, I'm seriously becoming um, an advocate of a more generalist stream of education running in parallel 
to the specialized one, mm-hmm. where people could get an appreciation for some of those, some skill in that area of, of, of the specialized knowledge, but also be called on to look at comparative and linked challenges. A little bit like the College of Sustainability is doing at Dalhousie, tries to look at sort of applied projects and bringing in these larger systems thinking approach yeah. to solving problems. I, I think it's it's certainly a way of, of solving problems in, in the future. And, you know, I think that the general knowledge base to create the sort of body of knowledge that we need is really held to be valuable or to see if it's correct, like this, the systems of thinking, if they're accurate, if they're put to the test. If you have an idea of how a house should be, or if you have an idea of what a city should look like, it's important to find ways to test that, even if it's general thinking. You know, that's a great that's a great insight. They actually did this in the 18th century when they wanted to, in Europe, both in Rome and in France, when people wanted to say, what would this street look like? They would erect temporary scaffolding and painted facades of this beautiful new street and say, oh, yeah, that, that works pretty well, and then plan to build it over the next 50 years. Yeah. Well, now it's great. Now now we can do it in virtual reality. We can give right. people the, the, the 3D immersive experience, even with rendering. It's, it's remarkably easy to do. And even from the 60s, you know, people started to say, we're not going to put paths here. We're going to see where people go, and then we're going to pave what they go, where they go. We're going to allow them to move chairs on their own. We start to see how people self-organize. It's mm-hmm. quite quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I know with, uh, with Dow, there's a a co-op term uh, where you can, if you find a particular field that is of interest in your studies, that you can hopefully find a studio of sorts that you can find a sort of common theme or an interest in, and then hopefully see it come to, to be. And you can test some of these ideas, which I think is, is really important. How do you feel that how how do you feel students once they graduate are able to integrate themselves into the profession? If you have a a student base that has a tremendous skill base learning, is that going to be better for the profession or is it a general one that's going to be better because then how can they integrate themselves? into the profession and also relate to contractors and so on if they have a bit more of a general approach. I think it has to be general in a sense. Um, students are never going to get enough skills to be useful to the profession in the short time frame they have in an academic period. And also the required skills, especially in terms of digital media, are changing so rapidly that they have to learn new programs and applications practically on a five-year horizon. So the other thing is students aren't passive receptacles, right? They're very active agents in what they learn. I don't think education is about developing those specific skills that, I mean, obviously they're going to have certain skills that are very useful, but I think a lot of the skills that they learn that make them immediately useful to the offices happen in the co-op terms, so I think, for example, if we're going to look at the BEDS program, mm-hmm. the undergraduate architecture program here at Dalhousie, the first three terms, they learn sort of the rudiments of, of designing 
buildings for people, having to do with the the need for buildings, the human activities that buildings surround, the basic aspects of structure, the basic aspects of formmaking. And they go through three different terms where they do this again and again, these iterations, as well as learning about architectural history and, mm-hmm. and, and how buildings stand up and how the external environment works on them. Then they go out into the workforce for four months for one term, and they always come back radically changed, both because they've had an opportunity to experience the limits of their education, to have a spark lit that motivates them to come back and look for something different in their education, and because they've been exposed to some dimension of practice out there, they're either driven by aspects of it or possibly even repelled by aspects of it. And it helps reorient them. And that's what I meant by saying they're active agents in their education. Mm -hmm. Then they come back for the next three terms and we see them much more, much more agency. There's more elective choices. They, they start to carve out a path for themselves. And that's the really interesting point Mm -hmm. because that's where they start to develop specialized knowledge that's driven by the fire within them that is carving the path that they'll take in the future. And because it reflects their passion, it's super important. Yeah. But then they also start to realize the limits of their knowledge and may want to explore more dimensions of it to integrate their own growth as a person, as a, as a human being, with their disciplinary knowledge as it's as it's increasing in its in its dimensions. Mm-hmm. And the culmination of this after their second work term is their ability to come back and do a thesis under their own motivation of what they think is important and how they make sense of the world, how they put it together. So by the time they finish that process, they've already had two entries into the workforce. They haven't just left school once, they've left it three times. And each time they've encountered the world out there brought what they know and also brought things back to the school, to the university. Hopefully that pattern continues through their life. Mm -hmm. And I know in the school we benefit hugely from having our alumni come back and teach because they're always renewing and refreshing that discussion both for themselves and for obviously the, uh, the institution. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it, it is it is great that uh, we have the the co-op terms, and I know that there are some other universities that do, but it it almost in some way legitimizes the knowledge base that you get first to say, okay, now you can take this right. and you can see how this fits within a you know professional environment. And if you're not getting what you feel you need right. in the space that you want to work, you can go back and do it again. So it's a, it's a nice sort of test to the experiment. It mobilizes that knowledge yeah, too. It, yeah, it is great. And I, you know, I remember that was also actually one of the bigger reasons why I ended up going to Dow because I I've been accepted to a few others universities in in Europe, one in London and one in in Austria, and they didn't have a strong sense of that bigger knowledge base with the applicable testing, which I think is an important sort of balance to any education. So I I decided to come here because you can still have a knowledge that is interesting and you can experiment and fail in in school and you can see how that works in in an office and then try and experiment and fail again because that 
is a problem or a challenge in the profession, especially in architecture, where you're hired for a degree of predictability, right? Yes. You're, you're hired so that you know that you can create something which is in the vision or a an intention of a client, which is hopefully going to be exactly what they what they need. Right? You're absolutely right, Vincent. I mean, if you were growing as an infant, you don't want to stay in the incubator too long. No. <laughs> to, yeah. to be able to develop everything you You'll need be to be fully soft. human, yeah. you have to be encountering the world around you. And I think that's absolutely true for education. What would you say in that realm then makes a great teacher? Oh, well, I think that's for the student to say, not for the teacher to say. But um, I can say what I would aspire toward in yeah. terms of being a good teacher. What I look, what I hope to do with each student is to have them get that, get that spark, like feel excited about something, to latch on to something in each course that they're learning and to feel like they have accomplished something so that they have, they've either developed a skill or they've exercised a new ability and they've learned something through the process and they feel incredibly proud of what they've been able to do. That, that they're able to achieve something they wouldn't have been able to do before mm -hmm. and that it gives them a new dimension to an understanding of themselves and also of what it is they're looking at. So it's the accumulation of knowledge. It's the development of skill. It's the feeling of self-confidence. It's the desire to learn more. It's all those things. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I think if as a teacher you're able to see that happen in your students, you're going down the right path. And watching your students, you know, get out in the world and do amazing things, that's also pretty rewarding. But the further you are away from that teaching moment, the less you can take credit for that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can be within 30 years and say, you know, well, I know that gold medal that they received from the Royal that's Institute nice. is partially because of your teaching, right? <laughs> well, one of my great satisfactions as dean um, over the past, uh, you know, however many, 11 years or something, was... Um, was visiting our alumni across the country and internationally. It's been really, it was really amazing to see a student that you taught 20 years ago. Mm. And they look different. They're a little filled out. You know, they have like spouses or even exes and they have children and, and they're telling you stories and their experiences are just so marvelous. And even people who were before I was teaching, who came from the same institution, you feel like you're part of this great extended network of humanity and of life coming right up next to you, that you're part of this larger community. And it's a feeling of of communion and togetherness. It's quite extraordinary. Oh, I can't imagine. Like you think of the number of students that you would have worked Thousands. with. And you know, there I remember being enormously stressed out in studios and in in times of evolution of a project and you know meeting with you or other faculty members and there's there's some insight from leadership in a teacher that can help you see things again clearly and you carry that with you for yeah. forever like and especially if you're going through similar stressful challenges in your own work right. and uh and the number of people that you would have influenced over the years would be quite 
quite huge. And, and you know, I, I think any teacher would probably have that same kind of feeling, whether you're an academic or a elementary school teacher or a high school teacher. But in a professional environment, that's one thing that is is a little bit different, right? We have, you know, there, there's people that work for us and we have different relationships and we're very excited about those that leave and, you know, start their own office and have their own flourishing career. And you have a kind of family like relationship, yes. but the difference is the volume of which yes. you do that compared to us. And it's that, that, that sense of community is, it's like difference between being in a rural environment like us and being in an urban environment and the population that you influence on your well, side. For me as a teacher, I find it such a privilege. It's something I'm very, very, very grateful for. The privilege of being able to be surrounded by so many young people who are excited about learning and excited about growing up and excited about the world. I mean, that's incomparable. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the future of education in, in terms of some of the, if you can walk me through some of the sort of the practical things that would be different, like what does a, an architecture school look like? Are we going to see students still building wood models? Are we going to see students then just using 3D printers? Are we going to see students drawing still? Or are they going to be almost primarily doing 3D you know, in renderings and, and 3D models? Or it, is it... Are we going to be talking about different types of buildings instead of studios with houses? Like, how do you see in, let's say, 10 years from now, and I know you don't have a crystal ball, but no. just as your insight from the years, where where do you see it going? Well, I think the general trend is going to be increasingly digital. So, yes, much more 3D visualization, 3D environments, virtual reality goggles, ability to... Um, envision and, and have have your clients and other people envision those spaces experienced. But I hope, I hope not only us, but design schools and architecture schools around the world can keep a very strong place for a design build in their in their curriculum. Because I think that, and whether it's talking about model building or actually building at larger scales, but I think larger scales are more helpful. What you learn from working with many people together to build something, even if it's a small thing like furniture on the waterfront or a pavilion on the citadel or uh, a small freestanding wall for a, a festival, the things you learn from that are really tremendously important to, I think, the skill of, of working with people together to create something, the, the different kinds of learning and knowledge, the social abilities to be able to do that. Uh, I think those are all really, really important, and they allow different people to shine and realize that they have skills in those domains. I think if it's all in the realm of virtual world, it's as if we don't, it's as if we only use one or two muscles in our body. And I think that's deeply problematic for people, human beings. I think we have to use more of our whole body in any kind of learning. It's a very powerful tool, but you're, you also need to develop hand-eye coordination, interpersonal communication, 
interpersonal communications, it's actually physical in the mm -hmm. realm of the auditory and the olfactory and the tactile. Yeah. Um, you, the whole, I mean, our, our bodies have evolved over, what, 50,000 years? Yeah. And this new technology has developed over three decades. And I think we have no idea how, how much we're already missing mm -hmm. our bodies. Yeah. And there's so many, so much potential in there that I think operates without us acknowledging it in terms of everything from meta language to interpersonal connections to magnetic fields. It sounds a little spacey here, but I'm from California. So you <laughs> you are from California, that. that's right. <laughs> so I, I just think those dimensions are really, really important. And it's one of the things I've appreciated actually about this pandemic time being on Zoom. I've actually been able to be really close to people's faces and experience that and much more one-on-one. -on -one, so I think that's been good. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've really missed is that feeling of community, like in a performance or that ability for us to come together and learn with our hands, yeah. with each other. So I think the future, I hope, the future will carry both of those. I have a few fun questions here for you. Okay. That, um, uh -oh. take us Favorite book and things? Yeah, some of those things. <laughs> well, I, You'd be surprised when we ask many of these our guests these questions, how different or in some cases, how similar a lot of them are. What is your favorite city? My favorite city. Ooh, that's a tough one. Mexico City. Okay. You've been there quite a few times. Yeah. I first spent my first summer there when I was 12. My parents, it was an exchange program. I stayed with a family there, Lebanese family for, I guess, three months. And I, in Polanco. And Spanish was my first foreign language, and I just love Mexico City, and I've been back many, many times since then. Yeah, everything—the weather, the 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 rain in the summer afternoons, the incredible culture, the food, everything. My wife and I have a, a deep love for for Mexico, and we've been there many, many, many times, and driven a a small truck across Mexico, yeah. and I can't wait to get back again. Well, Mexico City is one of the great cities of the world. It's got one of the great cuisines, and it's got. Um, it's got this incredible hybridity of uh, Aztec culture and and all the depths behind that long before um, the Aztecs came, and uh, and the Spanish colonial and the two things together, along with all the layers subsequently, have made it one of the extraordinary cities of the world. What is an object or thing that you feel was designed exceptionally well? There's a wonderful little espresso pot from the early 80s from Italy, which is, I'm not sure if it's Alessi, I don't think so. It's a perfect little cylinder, and it has a spout that's a perfect little cylinder and a perfect half circle for the handle. And it's one of the sweetest little espresso pots. It's like a perfect item of Bauhaus design. Oh, nice. And I have... My brother Mark, who who is an architect who who interned at Super Studio, uh, brought it back for me as a present in the uh, early '80s, and I still have it. It's just extraordinary. Okay. Well, you have to send me a photograph of it because okay. I'd like to see it. What book do you most often give as a gift? My favorite book, yeah, in the past five years, is this lovely memoir called "Hair with the Amber Eyes." It's uh, written by a potter who specializes in porcelain, and he's from the um, 
His name is Dewal, and he's from the uh, Frusi family. And he talks about his family from their origins in Odessa. And one branch that thrived in Paris as art dealers in the 19th century, and one branch that sort of thrived in Vienna. And then the dispersal of this family after the Second World War, leading up to and after. And it's it's a very lovely memoir because it's a uh, it's like an adventure story. Right. You're you're finding out about cool your cool. own family's past and how it intersects with history. We'll have some uh, show notes left um, so people can find that book as well. What skill or talent do you have that would surprise most people? I can body surf. Oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's great. That's and, great. And yeah. and I do painting. Are oh, you a painter? Well, I, I for the past ten years. Yeah. Oh, cool! I, it, landscapes, portraits. Yeah, just for a bit fun. We have a group of people that go out. We paint um, al fresco. Oh, great! All kinds of stuff. I I love to paint anything. Mostly, what I liked about painting is not so much like what you actually paint. Um, I liked the way it felt like I was on some kind of drug for the first two years. Because I saw everything absolutely differently. Oh, yeah. That's the power of drawing. It's You start looking and, and you just start to see fields of color. Like It was really like hallucinating. Mm. I really enjoyed that moment for about two years when I actually saw the world entirely differently. Yeah, that's that's the, probably my favorite part of studying or when I first got into architecture school was just just learning to draw and drawing and the process of seeing and, and talking to a lot of other professors or um, practitioners that would say it's so important to draw spaces that you've been to or that you understand, think you understand and you learn more after you've, you've drawn them. Like there's this whole, you know, the memory drawing. Um, I think it was Richard Croker, one of the professors at Dal, who um, was talking about going into places that you know or you're familiar with and then coming back and then drawing them. And your perceived understanding is so significantly presented and illustrated to you as you draw it. So you essentially exaggerate proportions of things, sort of like, you know, those plasticine figures of which the percentage of of your input it was scaled on those figures so like these noses were giant the forehead was tiny the mouth was giant so when you're drawing a space a square in plan section whichever it might be if you're by a window that felt cold you you may draw it in a way that would exaggerate that a sort of emotional or emotive response and i i still do it on a regular basis where I will sketch places that I've been to, whether it was cafes or something. And just you, you, you lock it into your brain, but you understand it that much more, which is the same as painting, right? That's where you're going back to the 40,000 year old body. Mm. The fact that you're locking it into your memory and brain through that act of drawing is this relationship between doing and learning and knowledge that's so essential. I don't think anyone would ever say what you just said about the first time they drew a computer right in a design because there it's data input and you don't actually have that sync that that connection mm-hmm. between the hand and the mind yeah that it's it's a huge struggle because as much as i want to include all of that in our practice or in our day-to-day development of a project sometimes it, it is it is missing that tactile component like this is like you're sitting in our 
uh, one of our spaces. And, you know, we have part of our boardroom, which is, is literally for mocking things up and, and building elements of a space for our clients to see, but also for us to test out and to see if what we've been describing, though it doesn't look correct on a 3D model, we know that it's going to look better than what it looks like, no matter how well we develop it. You need to see it. So, you know, behind you, we've got what will be presented to uh, a client of ours as a, as a ceiling element that runs through an entire space. So when, like what I'm pointing at to those that aren't here to see, um, it's, it's a white chain link fence that is going to be hanging from a ceiling for essentially a, a light fixture. And when I, or when our team would describe that to our clients say, we've got this great idea, it's gonna be a chain link fence that we're gonna hang off the ceiling and it's gonna make a beautiful light fixture. It doesn't go across <laughs> well, right? <laughs> so you have to build it. So uh-huh. that sort of physicality of it. So we'll have this described on a drawing to be built. So that's the value of the computer. But we also have the balance of it being built in the space and testing it out so we can we can look at it and, and get a sense of it. So it's important to have both, right? So another question for you, if you would go back in time to give yourself advice, what would you say? You can pick a moment of time. Let's, you know, maybe it was 30 years ago or 20 years ago. That's a tough one. I think when you ask about advice, it seems like there's right paths and wrong paths. But I, I don't, I can't see it that way because I, I'm happy with the paths I've taken. So I wouldn't give myself advice to change my path. I mean, there's been several moments like when I decided to do architecture instead of political science, or when I decided to do a year exchange in Vienna instead of Barcelona, or when I chose the graduate school I would go to, or when I decided that this was the woman I wanted to be with for my life, or when I decided I wanted to move to Canada, or when I decided to take this job here at Halifax. I mean, all these things are moments, they're like thresholds. You you give yourself advice and say, do it or don't do it, but I'm happy with with my life. So I I think those choices were, I don't think I'd give myself advice about that. I think the one thing I might give myself advice about is, um, especially when I was younger, the younger me, would have been to listen more and to try to figure out what motivates other people. I think I was so, in my life, I've been so enthusiastic and energetic about the things I saw or the things I felt that I wasn't as good at listening to what other people had to offer. When I was younger, it was all about my excitement, sort of like an overgrown teenager. But in my mid-40s, I started being less interested in what I had to say and more interested in what made other people tick. That's that's a great lesson for anybody who's listening. I think we could all do that more often, right? That's great. Uh, Last question, was I your favorite student? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much you for coming. Go- yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for for coming in and uh, spending uh, time with us today. It was great to catch up. We don't get to do this often. You've been a, a significant contribution to many, many, many people that have come out of that school. So thank you, thank you for that, and thank you. Uh, we'll we'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. It's a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the Design Makes Everything Better podcast by Breakhouse, a Canadian strategic design firm. This was episode six, part two with Christine Macy. A full transcript and show notes can be found at breakhouse.ca slash podcast slash 6.2. If you like the show, help us out. Subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app and share us with your friends. Have feedback or ideas for the show? Drop us a line at podcast at breakhouse.ca.